Good morning, church family. I pray that you are all well, as it is great to be back in the pulpit this morning. However, before we begin, I want to thank my partner in ministry here, Pastor Ricardo Vargas, for his sermon last week. I thought his exposition was precise, his pastoral heart was obvious, and his tone and encouragement was sincere. And it just seems so fitting that Ricardo, who is such a gifted encourager, would preach verses 12 through 14 last week. And I say that because up until last week, the Apostle John had been very direct, very blunt, and some would even say forceful in the way he has communicated to his readers. I mean, think about it. In chapter 1, John John unapologetically gets after his opponents for their heretical views. And then in chapter 2, it's not like John calms down, but instead he very candidly charged his Christian readers to not sin, to keep God's commandments, and to love each other. Thus the opening of John's first epistle is very direct, it is very candid, and at times downright blunt, and honestly, I absolutely love it. However, last week in verses 12 through 14, we saw kind of a different side of the Apostle John, a side that was very supportive and reassuring and comforting, where John encouraged all his Christian readers, including those who were maturing in the faith and those who are more, much more mature in the faith, by reaffirming to them the central truths of the Christian faith that their sins are forgiven, that they have overcome the evil one, and that they now intimately know God the Father, the one who is eternal and who is from the beginning. And oh, how encouraging those words always are to the ears of the Christian. However, today John goes back to his very direct and very candid and forthright ways, exhorting his readers to not love something. And yes, you heard that right. John, the author of 1 John, is exhorting his readers today to not love something. And why is that the case? Well, because not all love is profitable for the soul of the Christian. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or the main points of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, you can have only one true love. Therefore, do not make it the world, for the world will pass pass away. Instead, love God. Christian, you can only have one true love. Therefore, do not make it the world, for the world will pass away. Instead, love God. And our text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, and will be in verses 15 through 17. As the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What a beautiful truth you have given us this morning. 
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his atoning work on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity as your saints to gather this morning to encourage each other, to love each other, and above all else, to worship you, the God of the universe. For we are not children of the darkness. We are children of the day. We have rejected the ways of the world, and we walk in your will, Father. Thus, Father, make it clear to us today, if we are holding on to any desires that this world has to offer, let us reject them this morning. Let us run from them this morning. Let us mortify them this morning and run ever closer to you. Father, I pray that you open the eyes and the ears of this dear congregation this morning. Soften their hearts to receive this word. And Father, I pray that you give my lisping tongue this morning the proper words to speak. Father, I pray that I be humble, that I be bold, and above all else, speak truth to these dear ones. Truth so that you, Father, be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Our first of two points this morning is this. Point number one. Christian, avoid the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, for they are all passing away. Christian, avoid the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, for they are all passing away. We'll be looking at verses 15 and 16 first, where the Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Douglas O'Donnell pointed out that the word love is used by the Apostle John some 51 times in this epistle. But the only time in the whole epistle that John uses it in a way to describe something that we are not to love is right here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And you might be sitting there this morning thinking, Wait, what? Do not love the world? I mean, didn't God create the world? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And didn't God himself love the world? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And didn't we just read that Christ died for the sins of the world? 1 John 2.2, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But now the Apostle John, who all he wants to do is tell Christians to love, love, love. All of a sudden now he wants to tell us to not love the world. I mean, seriously, what gives with this guy? And this is where context, or this is why context, is oh so critical to understanding the proper meaning of Scripture. Because when John uses the word world here, he is not describing the cosmos or the physical manner which make up the world. Nor is John describing the people who live in the world. 
Instead, when John uses the word world, he's using it in a way to describe how the world walks in their unregenerate state. He's using it in a way to describe the sinful, evil, wicked desires of the world that stand in resistance to the ways of God and that are in line with the ways of the evil one, with the ruler of darkness, of Satan himself. That is the world in which John is talking about here when he says in verse 15, do not love the world. Now why does he exhort his readers to not love the world? Verse 15, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, church, you can't love the things that Satan loves. You can't walk in the ways that Satan walks. You can't feed on the lies that Satan spews and then honestly proclaim, oh, I love God and that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Because the reality is you do not love God, you love the world. And your Lord, or that which rules over you, are the ways of the world. And what are these aforementioned ways of the world, or the things that Satan loves, the, the ways that Satan walks, or the lies that Satan spews? John answers that question in verse 16, where he writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what are the ways of the world? John begins with this in verse 16. The desires of the flesh. Or as the NASB calls it, the lust of the flesh. And what John is describing here are sinful physical cravings or sinful sensual cravings. Things like a sinful desire for food, gluttony, a sinful desire for drink, drunkenness, a sinful desire for rest, slothfulness, a sinful desire for sex, adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, and the like. The desires of the flesh are the things that entice and excite the lust of our physical nature, deceitfully promising to offer us joy and delight and happiness. But here is the reality with the desires of the flesh. If you pursue a life of sexual fulfillment and immorality, if you pursue a life of drugs and alcohol, cheap thrills and buzzes, if you pursue a life of gluttony, overindulgence and pleasure, do you know where that pursuit will take you, church? Condemned to hell forever. Pursue above all else the desires of the flesh, and church, I can promise you, it only leads to the gates of hell. Charles Spurgeon wrote this parable. He said, there once was a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith, for that was his job, had to go and forge a chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant, and he was ordered to take it away and make it twice as long. The blacksmith brought it again to the tyrant and again was ordered to make it twice as long. Again, the blacksmith returned when he had obeyed the order, and the tyrant looked at it and then commanded his servants to bind the blacksmith hand and foot with the chain that he had made and cast him into prison. That is what the devil does with men, Spurgeon said. He makes them forge their own chain, and then he binds them hand and foot with it and casts them into eternal darkness. My friends, that is just what the drunkard, the fornicator, and the addict do. 
In fact, it is what every sinner is doing. Church, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And those who are in the flesh, church, they cannot please God, Romans 8. Church, do not set your mind on the desires of the flesh, because the desires of the flesh, they lead to death. For it is only the mind that is set on the spirit that receives the gift of life and peace. It is only the mind that is set on the spirit that receives the gift of life and peace. Next, the Apostle John speaks in verse 16 of the desires of the eyes. Jesus said in his sermon on the mount that the eye is the lamp of our body. So if our eyes are healthy, our whole body will be full of light. Thus, is it any wonder why Satan wants to control our eyes? Because if Satan can get control of the content we place before our eyes, he can certainly make sure that our, be, our body will be full, not of light, but of darkness. I mean, think of it this way, church. If Satan can consistently get scantily clad women on our computer, he can certainly get us to lust. If Satan can consistently get cars and boats and other luxury items in front of us, he can certainly get us to covet. If Satan can consistently get the Kardashians and Hollywood and the lifestyles of the rich or the famous in front of us, he can certainly get us to be greedy and envious and jealous. Thus, how serious is this battle for our eyes, church? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Therefore, church, we must take whatever steps necessary to guard our eyes and keep our focus on Christ. And church, I mean any step necessary. Thus, if that means cutting your Netflix account, then cut it. If that means installing covenant eyes onto your computer, then install it. If that means finding an accountability partner to keep you from watching pornography, then do it. Church, take whatever steps are needed in your life to guard yourself from the desires of the eyes. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell forever. And finally, John warns his readers in verse 16 about the pride of life. Or as one translation puts it, the pride in one's possessions. And what John is describing here is the persons whose sense of joy comes from their possessions. It is the person who treasures their achievements, adores their belongings, and worships the empire in which they have built for themselves. Now, what exactly falls into this category or concept of the pride of life or the pride in one's possessions? Well, in fact, it can be many of things. It could be the pride one has in their new house. It could be the pride one takes in their new car. It could be the pride one possesses in their savings accounts as they just continue to watch it keep growing and growing and growing. It could be the pride one gets from their vacations, the pride one holds in their position at work, or the pride one senses from their influence on social media. But here is the point I want to make with this. 
those things I just mentioned, in and of themselves, they are not bad things. Having a house to live in is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a gift from God. Having a car, a savings account, taking your family on vacation, they are not bad things. However, what John is describing here is the one who treasures who adores, who worships and places the source of their joy in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In essence, John is describing here the persons whose identity is not in Jesus Christ, but it is in the things that this sinful world has to offer. As Daniel Aiken put it, it is in their power, their possessions, their prestige, and their position, for that is the pride of their life. And Jesus met a man who understood quite clearly the deceptive power that the pride of life can have over a person. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus meets a rich young man who said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The prophet Jeremiah spoke, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Now, why is this such a big deal, church? All of this. Why is it such a big deal that we as Christians reject the desires of the flesh? Why is it such a big deal that we as Christians reject the desires of the eyes and reject the pride of life? I mean, this life, it is hard. It is crazy out there. It is hostile. Thus, why can't we as Christians find temporal delight in our money, our wealth, or the things that we can gather and accumulate in the here and now? I mean, why is John so dogmatic and forceful and exhorting against this practice in the life of the Christian? And it is because the things that this world has to offer, church, they can be destroyed by moths and rust, they can be stolen by thieves, and because they will all pass away, and so too will those who place their trust in those things. Which takes us to point number two. The one who follows the will of God will live forever, but the one who follows the ways of the world will perish The one who follows the will of God will live forever, but the one who follows the ways of the world will perish. Verse 17. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen to that sobering opening line again in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Think about that for a second. That means that all the treasures man is storing up for himself in the here and now, that they are passing away. For they are all going to burn on the final day. No matter what, you can't take them with you. And yet, yet so many people live as if they can. From the hour they wake up in the morning until the moment they go to bed, they are driven by the pursuit of gaining more and more of what the world has to offer. More money, more possessions, more wealth, more fame, more real estate. And for what? For it is all passing away and you cannot take it with you. Russian author Leo Tolstoy once wrote a story about a successful farmer who was not satisfied with his lot. He wanted more of everything. And one day he received a unique offer. For $10 he could buy all the land that he could walk in a day. The only catch was that he had to be back at his starting point by sundown. So early the next morning he started out walking at a fast pace. By midday, he was very tired, but he kept going, covering more and more ground. But once into the afternoon, he realized that his greed had taken him far from the starting point. So he quickened his pace. And as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he began to run, knowing that if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity to become an even bigger landholder would be lost. As the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within the sight of the finish line, and gasping for breath, his heart pounding, he called upon every bit of strength left in his body and staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. And he immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth, and a few minutes later, he was dead. So his servants dug him a grave. It was not much more than six feet long and three feet wide. The title of Tolstoy's story was this, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Was it worth it, church? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And that is the point, that you can gain all the land All the money, all the gizmos, all the vacation homes, houses, bikes, cars, and motorcycles, but it is all still passing away. You can redo your office with fancy chandeliers, new bookshelves, leather couches, and rich mahogany floors, but it is all still passing away. You can work long hours, get the promotion, make the big bonus, update your LinkedIn account, and tell all your friends that you're now the new vice president, but it is all still passing away, and there is absolutely no nothing you can do about it. So with that in mind, Christian, the question is, what then is the reason, the motivation, the hope that we as Christians have here on earth if it is all passing away? And the answer to that question is found so profoundly in verse 17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Michael Green shared that in 1859, the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society, or before the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society, Abraham Lincoln illustrated the profound impact that change can have on all of us. 
Lincoln told of an Eastern monarch who gave his counselors an assignment to come up with a truth that would apply at all times and in all situations. After careful consideration, they returned with this sentence, and this too shall pass away. Said Abraham Lincoln, how humbling in our hour of pride that this too shall pass away. How consoling in the hour of affliction that this too shall pass away. However, centuries before, the Apostle John made this very same point, that the world will pass away, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. In essence, John's saying here, look, there is no comparison. You can have all the desires of the world, all the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, and what will you get out of it? 10, 20, 30 years of vanity and cheap worldly happiness only to be followed by eternal wrath, punishment, and hell? Or you can seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You can do the will of God in the here and now, and then you can abide in him forever. You can reject the desires of the flesh, refuse the desires of the eyes, run from the pride of life, and instead believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and love your fellow believers. For that is the will of God. And why should we do this, church? What logical, rational, sane reason do we have to follow the will of God over the ways of the world? For it is because Jesus Christ, he has already won. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light, it is already shining. You see, the true light, Jesus Christ, he has already won. And the darkness and the world they lost and they are passing away. Thus why would anyone climb aboard the sinking ship that is the world? For it is a trap. It is a death wish. It is a guaranteed eternal loss to set sail on the ways of the world. Whereas if you place your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow the will of the Father instead of the ways of the world, it is victory over sin and death. It is victory over darkness and worldliness. It is victory over the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Thus the question is, church, do you want to give in to the lust of the world in the here and now and spend eternity in hell? Or do you want to seek the victor, the king, God himself and his eternal kingdom and abide with him forever in his dwelling place? Where Revelation 21 puts it, he will wipe away every tear from our eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for it is where the former things have passed away. Thus do not be drawn to the things of the world, Christian, for they are vanity. They are temporary and they lead to eternal death. Instead, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Thus, Christian, be fearless, be confident, and be bold in following the will of God in the here and now, because you can rest assure it leads to eternal life. And as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. Non-Christian, I am sure this is not an easy message for you to chew on this morning. As I realize you are likely sitting there not seeking the things of God, 
not mortifying the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, but instead finding some type of temporal pleasure in them. Thus, I pray that today be the day you see the wickedness of the world and understand that this type of worldliness, it only leads to eternal death. And that via the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you begin to feel some level of grief over your worldly ways this morning. But not just any type of grief. A grief that, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, a grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Meaning, I don't want you to be grieved today because your house isn't as nice as your neighbor's or you're not where you thought you would be professionally, or you can't throw those big luxurious parties you wanted to throw. I want you to be grieved this morning because you placed the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life above the God of the universe. Thus, I pray that you sense a godly grief this morning over your love for the world, and that this godly grief leads to a repentance that brings about eternal salvation this morning. And how might this be possible? You might be wondering that you can be forgiven of your worldliness and be reconciled back to God forever. Non-Christian, it is only by trusting in the Son of God in Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save the unrighteous from their worldly and sinful ways. And how did Christ do this? By completely rejecting the ways of the world and living a life completely without sin. You see, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, he lived the life that we could not live, the life that was perfect and righteous and holy. And not only that, he, Jesus Christ, also paid the price that we could not pay, meaning he paid the debt, the penalty that we incurred on ourselves for our sin and for our worldliness. And how did he do this? How did Christ pay our debt? By bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sins, by dying on a cross in our place. Non-Christian, God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ, he died for us. However, being that Jesus Christ is God, and being that he lived a life without sin, sin and death, they could not keep Jesus Christ dead. They could not keep the God-man dead. And three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and defeating death and offering eternal life for all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you turn from your worldliness and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who paid the price for your sin, the only one who can forgive you of your worldliness and clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Non-Christian, let today be the day that you place your trust in Jesus Christ, and today will be the day that you can rest assured your sins and your worldliness, they will be forgiven and that you will abide in him forever. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, verse 15 reads, do not love the world or the things in the world. And as we learned this morning, what John is talking about here are the sinful and evil and wicked desires of the world that stand in resistance to the ways of God. 
And I think we as Christians are very comfortable condemning these evil and sinful and wicked desires when we speak about them in the most abhorrent and vile sense possible. Meaning, it's easy for us as Christians to say, yes, the desires of the flesh, like adultery, they are evil. The desires of the eyes, like explicit X-rated movies, they are evil. The pride of life, like boasting in your riches, that is evil. However, when we only speak and think about these evil desires in their most abhorrent sense, too often we fail to see just how much of the world has actually wiggled its way right into our own lives. So yes, you may be sitting there this morning condemning those explicit X-rated movies and hating the effects that they are having on this generation. But are you then going home and watching TV shows with content that is pulling you oh so closer and closer to those same explicit movies that you condemn? My point here is this, church. We are called to do the will of God meaning we are called to reject the ways of the world, reject the desires of the flesh, reject the desires of the eyes, and reject the pride of life. And we are not only called to reject these worldly ways when we see them played out in their most abhorrent and vile and wicked way possible, but we are also called to reject the ways of the world even when we see a hint, an ounce, an inkling of them in our lives. Thus do not, brother Christian, sister Christian, give the world any type of foothold in your life. No matter how small they appear, no matter how minuscule they seem, for the ways of the world, they seek to choke you out. Thus, if you have been going through the motions lately concerning your sanctification or concerning your walk with Christ and mortifying the deeds of the flesh, and you have been letting yourself get sucked into watching something you normally wouldn't watch on Netflix, or becoming flirtatious with a co-worker, or becoming a little prouder about the things you normally wouldn't by, then consider Romans 13 to be your wake-up call this morning, Christian, a call for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Christian, make no provision for the flesh, but instead put on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body do not love the world or the things in the world. Father, help us to realize that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that they are fool's gold, a hoax, a sham, and they only lead to eternal death. Thus, if we are holding on to any worldliness this morning, Lord, I pray we repent of it, we flee from it, and we mortify it. And help us, Lord, to follow your will. As Christians, as your children, your love, it is in us. Not the love of the world, but the love of the Father. Therefore, every day, help us to grow closer to you, spurring the ways of the world and finding true peace, true joy, and true contentment in your will, God. Because your will, Father, it is always best as it alone leads to eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father. Lord, it is only your will that leads to eternal life. It is not the ways of the world. It is to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. For that is the gospel of Jesus. Father, help us to cling to your gospel this morning. Let us reject the way the world tries to wiggle its way into our life when we see ourselves watching things we shouldn't watch, desiring things that put our identity in them and not in you. Father, help us to flee from these things this morning, I pray. Lord, you have given us the greatest gift the world has ever seen, reconciliation back to yourself through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Let that be our identity. Let that be the will we seek in all that we do. Knowing the gift that we receive from the gospel, it truly is the most magnificent gift ever, that we can abide and live with you forever. In your dwelling place, with you, God. Life with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.